0: of all the different kalim and details of the construction of the Mishkan, which are outlined in Parshios, V'yakal, and Pekude, as Bezalel and the other artisans lead the actual construction of the Mishkan, we read in Perk Lamedchet, Pasul Ches, V'yas that he made the kior, which we could translate as the basin of copper, and its stand, or the pedestal, also of copper, what was the what were these things made out of? The Maros Hatsovos, with the mirrors of the women, a Shirtsavu Pasach moed, who had gathered at the moed, at the tent of meeting. And the question is, what exactly is going on here? It seems like a somewhat curious construction of a pasuk. Uh, and there's something seemingly alluded to uh, in this interesting description of The fact that the copper here was specifically donated based on the mirrors of the women. And in fact, in the classical Mufarsham, we seem to have at least three different approaches, two of which are similar in one sense, and the third being, in a certain sense, fundamentally different. On the one hand, uh, let's start with the Ibn Ezra and the Sforno. They explain that basically there was something inherently problematic about these mirrors. After all, mirrors are all for vanity and beauty, and making yourself up and looking pretty. And that is basically implicitly uh, understood as something superficial and not something that would be consistent with the higher angels of our nature, not something that would be somewhat spiritual. And yet, these are considered nevertheless suitable for the Mishkan because the owners, the women who donated them, by donating them show that they are rejecting their usual usage of these mirrors. In the words of the Sephorno, By donating these mirrors, the women are showing that they are rejecting the life of the physical and of beauty and of vanity, and instead they are prioritizing religious virtue and spirituality. We don't need these anymore. We don't care about physical vanity In beauty, rather, we care about religious virtue and spirituality. Amazingly, the Ebenezer, when he describes this, he says something that would be uh, perhaps somewhat shocking uh, to many of us and perhaps needs a separate discussion. He says that, in fact, the tradition uh, that we see here highlighted uh, of the Jewish approach to modesty is very similar to that of the Arabs. It says it's even current in the Ebenezer's own day. He said, in fact, we are, our Jewish women are not focused on physical uh, beauty, etc. As we see in the story, They don't care about physical beauty or the superficial. They only care about the inner spiritual, private beauty. And they gathered instead not to look at themselves in the mirror, but rather to daven every day in the presence of the Mishkan. So the Ebenezer, and implicitly the Sfarno as well, understand that the reference at the end of the Pasach about the women gathering is after they've given up their mirrors, they've rejected the life of physical beauty, now they just come to the Beis HaMikdash, so to speak, the Mishkan, to Davin. That's one approach. The Chizkuni, uh, perhaps echoing a similar approach broadly uh, to the role of beauty uh, as something that could potentially be an enticement of sin, but nevertheless has a different approach to what's actually happening in the in the actual psukim, says the Chizkuni that this basin, the kior, was placed in between the sanctuary and the Mizbeach. And the reason is, and it was even placed on an angle, so that the area where women in the Mishkan would regularly gather, they would be able to see it. Why was it important for women to be able to see this particular kli in the Mishkan? Because it was from this big basin, the kior, that the water that would be used in the ...need for a sota ritual, this is where the water would come from, which would be mixed in a special way, to test the sota woman to see if she had been faithful to her husband or not. And therefore, says the Haskuni, these kalim were placed in such a way that they would be constantly a reminder to Jewish women who would come to the Beit HaMikdash, who would come to the Mishkan, and they would see them in such a way that it would be a reminder to them and a way of preventing them, hopefully, from ever going down this perilous road... He says they were placed where they were, And therefore, by constantly seeing this, whenever they would go to the Mishkan, this would remind them of what could happen, God forbid, if they strayed from the general uh, posture of modesty. So he focuses on a different element, not that the women would gather to uh, just daven or gather to donate, rather they would gather specifically so they could see this area of the Mishkan, and that would remind them to hopefully live a life of religious uh, purity and not even get into a situation questionable, which would require a sota ritual. Last but not least, and taking a completely, I think, different and uh, very uplifting approach, is that of Rashi, who's really commenting based on incredible medrash in the Tanhuma, And the medrash describes, as Rashi writes at great length, how the women came and brought these mirrors. And the mirrors, yes, were used for beauty, but beauty is in a way that was celebrated and elevated and sanctified. As the medrash describes that Paro, part of his plan against the Jewish people was to prevent not only killing the Jewish baby boys but prevent any new babies from being born and he prohibited the men from being when they were slave, slaves he prevented them from being with their husbands however the and the men had really given up as we know so the women would come with their mirrors they would make themselves all beautiful and they would bring the mirrors and having made themselves up they'd go out to the field where their husbands were enslaved and they would entice uh, and sh- talk with their husbands until their husbands were in the mood, and eventually the husbands and the wives would be intimate and this is what led to the perpetuation of the Jewish people, and the women now said, we want to give this, this positive thing which kept the Jewish people alive, we want to donate it Moshe says the Medrash was initially against it he thought it was perhaps inappropriate, but Hashem says, no, these are the most precious things to me I love them because this is what kept the Jewish people alive, and in fact, this is what eventually uh, was donated, and in fact, says Rashi, the Sota ritual is not something negative, on the contrary, the the ritual is to hopefully keep marriages together. Marriages in which suspicion has entered can now be healed by the healing waters of the Sota, which can show the woman's innocence, and so too, once again, marriages can be preserved with these kelim. While Parshios, Truma, and Tetzava <clears throat> or when Hashem told Moshe about the plan to build the Mishkan and all of its various utensils and components, Parshios, V'yakal, and Pekudi where that becomes a practical reality, and in fact, the components of the Mishkan and all of the clothing of the Kohanim and the Kohen Gadol were created. It's therefore no surprise that towards the beginning of Parshas Vayakel, we are introduced to the most prominent person involved in the construction, the leader of that effort, the foreman, if you will, uh, and that, of course, is Bezalel. However, what is striking is the way the Torah introduces us to Bezalel. Perakalamid hey Pasuk Lamid, Vayomar Moshe El B'nai Yisrael, Ruu, C, Kura Hashem Bashem. Hashem has proclaimed by name, Betzalel ben Uri ben Chor, Lamate Yehuda. Who is it? None other than Betzalel, the son of Uri, the grandson of Chor, from the tribe of Yehuda. And as I mentioned, and it's really quite obvious when you hear the Pasuk read, it's obviously not a typical way any character in the Torah is introduced, and it's just an awkward or somewhat confusing or clumsy formulation. Re'u, see, Hashem declared the name Bezalel. What exactly is going on? And in fact, Rav Moshe Feinstein in his Darash Moshe directly addresses this question. L'chora, lo muvan, he asked, it doesn't make any sense. Ech ro'im b'nei adamzeh? How does the word Re'u make any sense? You can't see a person's name. The whole thing seems a bit a little awkward. Uh, moreover, he asks, in what way was the choice of Betzalel to lead the construction of the Mishkan different than the previous appointment of Aaron to become the Kohen Gadol? no less of a prominent job, to say the least, and yet we don't have an introduction that Aaron see he's the one who's going to be the Kohen Gadol. How come it's somewhat unique by Betzalel? What is going on here? What's the Torah trying to convey? says Rav Moshe Feinstein something so fascinating and so important and so profound. Says Rav Moshe Feinstein, whatever talents an individual has, he or she must realize that whatever else you can do with those talents the ultimate purpose for any of those gifts, any of those talents that Hashem has given you, is to be able to serve the Jewish people, and to be able to increase Kvod Shemayim in the world. And even though, says Rav Moshe, you're not commanded to do X or Y, something specific with those talents, in the way that you're commanded to keep Kosher or keep Shabbos, nevertheless, says Rav Moshe, that's just because Hashem wanted to keep the possibility of Bechir Chavshis, a person has to be able to choose freely, what he or she will do with his life. However, says Ramoshe, but fundamentally, from God's perspective, from the moral perspective, is there a right thing to do? Yes. And the right thing to do is to use your talents towards the betterment of the Jewish community, towards the betterment of bringing down quote Shemayim, making the world a better place, one that more reflects godliness. However, says Ramoshe, therefore, we are commanded for this higher mission, and if we don't use the talents appropriately that Hashem gave us, Hashem will have a, a claim against us. With that background, with that fundamental uh, article of faith, if you will, declared, Moshe says, now we understand this pasuk. How do we see B'Tzalel's name, but see that he's the artisan? And what way do we see it? If Hashem gave him all these talents, it says Ramosh, it's very simple. If you're living in the time of the construction of the Mishkan, and you were given all these natural, artistic, organizational, architectural talents, it's clear, you can see clearly that you must have been given those talents not to have some random uh, architectural or artistic uh, accomplishments, but rather specifically in order to be able to build the Mishkan. If the reason Hashem gives anyone talents is to help further God's mission in the world, and you have artistic talents which are perfectly aligned for what it now needs to be done to build the Mishkan, and it's the time of the building of the Mishkan, says her Moshe, it's obvious you can see this plane is day, as clear as day, that that is what you are destined for. In that sense, says Rav Moshe, Sal Kel, yes, I, there was a something, there was some divinely artistic talent that Betzal had been endowed with, and you could see it, it was clear as day that he was destined, he was the one who's supposed to be leading the charge and leading the project of building the Mishkan. And therefore, says Rav Moshe, that's true, was, it was true for Betzal, and even if it's less true, but ultimately is true, less clear, but is ultimately true for each and every one of us. We all have free choice with how to spend our lives and how to use our talents. But says Ramosh, we should realize we are given those talents in order to further Hashem's mission in the world and make the world a better, more godly place and to bring Kvod Shemayim. And if we don't do that, then all the blessings that Hashem gave us, whether they're talents or wealth or whatever the case may be, we will be have a claim brought against us that we didn't live up to our destiny, In our mission, this idea of Rav Moshe here in our parsha is reminiscent of a very famous and one of my favorite ideas from Rav Salavichik, who explained that the Gemara in Nida when it talks about how every baby, when he or she is in the mother's womb, uh, an angel comes and teaches the child Torah, and then makes the baby take a shavua, an oath that they will be atzadik, that they will do the right thing and they will live their life in a very worthy way. What is the whole purpose of this very uh, fascinating, imaginative medrash? So R. Salvechuk used to say that the medrash is teaching us, the Gemara is teaching us, that everyone has to live a life of shlichus, of mission. Every person is endowed with talents and a mission to accomplish during his or her life that only he or she can accomplish. And specifically, we were all born at this time and in this place to accomplish our mission. And that is something that the angel, so to speak, uh, swears every child to before they are born, that they will live a meaningful life, one of mission and serving out their potential. And that is, in a very specific way, exactly what Rav Moshe Feinstein said in our Parsha. When you have someone with so much obvious talent, you can see what their mission is. At the outset of Parshas Pekudei, we read in Paraklam and Ches Pasuk Chabez Ubitzal ben Uri ben Chur Yehuda says, tziva Hashem es Moshe." The betzalel the son of Uri, the grandson of Chur from Yehuda, the tribe of Yehuda, he did everything that Hashem had commanded Moshe for him to do. Rashi quotes here uh, in his commentary to the pasuk an incredible teaching that the Gemara has in Masechtah Brachos and Nun and Aleph, and there Chazal maintain that actually much more was going on than meets the eye. In fact, a lot more was happening than was just revealed or indicated by this very brief Pasuk. And in fact, based on a subtle reading of the fact that the Torah uses the word Tziva and not the word Tzuva, Rashi points out that that indicates a tantalizing possibility that perhaps B'tzalel enacted and executed the building and the construction of the Mishkan exactly the way Hashem had in fact commanded Moshe, even those material information and facts that Moshe in turn had not shared with Batsalel. Now this is obviously incredibly tantalizing, incredibly intriguing idea. Could it be that there were things that Hashem had commanded Moshe that he didn't share with Batsalel, And how would Batsalel have known them? So this is the setup that Rashi gives to the incredible teaching of the Gemara and there the Gemara comments that the name Shem Alshem Nikra It's not a coincidence that that's his name but in fact specifically alludes to the deep and profound wisdom that B'tzal demonstrated Where do we see that B'tzal had such incredible deep and profound wisdom? So the Gemara says from a particular incident When Moshe was commanded by Hashem he was told to do what? To build the mishkan, the outer structure, and then to furnish that outer structure with things like the aron and the other kelim, the other vessels of the mishkan. However, it says the gemara, when Moshe then communicated those instructions to Betzalel, halach <speaking> Mosheva <in Hebrew> hafach. Moshe on his own inverted; he changed; he reversed the order. And Moshe told Betzalel, "Ase aron U Mishkan, Make the aron and the other vessels, and only finally and lastly build the outer structure." Despite this direct instruction from his Rebbe, from his master Moshe, with great respect and deference, Batsalo says the Gemara, pushed back a little he says to Moshe, my teacher, with great respect but isn't the way of the world that first a person builds the bias and only afterwards brings in the kalim. don't you first build a house and then furnish it with furniture, you build the outer structure and only then you bring in the vessels however you Moshe, you're telling me to do the opposite first build the utensils, the vessels and only afterwards give them a vessel, give them a structure a place to be housed after all, says batalo kalim yose if I would follow your instructions instructions in your order, and I would make the kelim first, where would I even put them? And despite, or in addition to, that com- incredibly compelling uh, logical and rhetorical argument, but Salah says the Gemara adds one more point. Shema, he says to Moshe, perhaps, maybe, is it possible, kach amr is it possible that maybe, originally Hashem had told you to do the mishka on our own, and only then, finally, the kelim, first build the outer structure, create the physical home, and only then furnish it with the various Aron, the other vessels, and now confronted with not only the compelling logic of Batsalel's argument and rationale, but additionally, the very respectful and deft way that Batsalel had hinted at, you know, maybe, maybe, that that's really what Hashem had originally said, and to his credit, Moshe acknowledges not only the compelling logic of B'Tzal's argument, but even more importantly, Moshe admits, that yes, you're right, you're right, that is in fact, what Hashem had originally told me, Shema B'Tzal Kel Hayita, Viedata. perhaps, you were in the shadow of God, B'Tzal B'Tse'el Kel, B'Tzal's name is a conjugation, B'Tzal Kel, the shadow of God, and that's how you knew, in other words, says Moshe, what incredible wisdom and intuition that you had it 's almost as if you were there when Hashem told me you were in the shadow of god i didn 't see you. I thought there were only two people in the conversation, but se- somehow you knew what was happening, so to speak. maybe you were hiding if you will in the shadow of God, meaning you have such incredible wisdom and int- intuition you actually had a divine intuition, you intuited what Hashem had actually had actually told me, and that is how the Gemara concludes, and that's what's being alluded to in our pasuk. That in fact, when Batsalo built the Mishkan, not only did he do it exactly the way Moshe had commanded him, but even he did, he even did it in a way that Hashem really wanted, but that he hadn't heard from Moshe, but that he intuited on his own. This incredible Gemara, which is paraphrased here by Rashi, really stands on its own as a, a remarkable, remarkable teaching of Hazal. But Time permitting, I wanted to just add two other points which I think will deepen our appreciation of the teaching of Chazal, of the Skemara. Firstly, many Mepharshim ask, why or how would Moshe have the audacity, or even just the logic, of reversing, of changing what Hashem had commanded him? And how and why did B'Tzal intuit that really the correct order should be different? So there are many answers to this question, but one which I think is very insightful is suggested by the Maharal, in his commentary to Rashi, known as the Guraryei. He says, really you have to understand that Moshe and Batal were coming from different and opposite perspectives. And I think this is so valuable because so often in life when people have disagreements and they're really often talking past each other, it's best understood if you realize that they're coming from different perspectives. Moshe says the Maharal was coming from the world of Limud, we might call the hypothetical, the theoretical, the intellectual, even the ivory tower. And from that perspective, he was right that the kelim, that the vessels of the Mishkan are the ikar. After all, they are what the avoda will be done and performed with. So in that sense, they are really more important. They are the essence of the Mishkan, and therefore they should go first. However, Betzalah was coming from the world not of the of limud, a nidia of the hypothetical, but rather of the olam of the asiyah, the world of the practical. He had to get things done. He wasn't just the architect; he was the he was the developer. He had to actually build it, and he understood from a practical perspective that first you build the house, and only then do you furnish it with its various utensils and vessels. And in that sense, they both were right, but coming from different perspectives, they are right each in their own perspective. But in the end, Hashem sided with B'tzalel. Secondly, uh, I think one could also uh, point out, and this is something I heard many, many years ago from Rav Rosenzweig, that the Loshan of the Gemara, Derech Eretz, that B'tzalel was pointing out to Moshe, it's not just the ends, it's also the means. It's not just what the goal is, but how we do things have to be done in the right way, in a way that people in the greater world will respect and understand. As we approach the completion of the Mishkan, the Torah summarizes the donations made to its construction, and we read in Perak LaMenchas Pasuk Chafalef, a pasuk that introduces this summary. <speaking> in <Hebrew> These are the accountings of the Mishkan of the Tabernacle, the Tabernacle of testimony, which were counted by the word of Moshe. The obvious difficulty is the apparent redundancy of the words Hamishkan. <speaking in Hebrew> Mishkan. El mishkan, mishkan ha'edus. The words Mishkan HaMishkan are back to back. And they seem to be totally uh, redundant and really it seems unnecessary. One reference to the word should have been enough to convey the meaning of the Pasuk. So why does the Torah repeat the word? Why the redundancy? In order to answer this question, Rashi cites the teaching of the Medrash, often cited from the Tanchuma, but also contained in the Medrash Rabbah, on our parsha that the phrase is actually a reference to the future destruction of the two beis hamikdashs how so playing on the similarity of the words mishkan which is in our pasuk the tabernacle and uh, another hebrew word which sounds almost identical spelled almost identical mashkon which is a the word that's used for a collateral and therefore it says the Medrish in a play on words that this double language is an allusion to the fact that both of the Bate mikdash first Beis HaMikdash to second base Mekdash, will ultimately one day be Nis mashken, They'll be taken as a collateral for the sins of the Jewish people. In other words, this explanation is with great creativity, expressing the well-known idea that Hashem, as it were, took back. He took as a payment the base HaMikdash as a result of our iniquity. We sinned. That created a debt we owed to Hashem. Really, to repay the actual debt, Hashem should have taken us as payment, in other words, he should have killed us, destroyed us, we deserve that. However, Hashem, in his compassion, took the two Batei Megdash as a collateral in lieu of the debt we owed him, he accepted the, quote-unquote, lesser payment, the collateral of the Beis HaMegdash. And this idea that we sinned, therefore we had a debt to Hashem, we deserve to be punished, but Hashem had a level of compassion and therefore only, quote-unquote, only destroyed the Beis HaMegdash instead of us, this is an idea that is found in numerous other traditional sources, however, the Medrish's our Medrish's incredibly brilliant and creative play on words with Mishkan and Mashkon, that is unique to the medrash here cited by Rashi. A number of commentaries suggest and wonder about the deeper connection between this point, which, as I said, can be found in this very mainstream kind of a traditional idea of reward and punishment and the fact that we really deserve to be destroyed Nashem only, quote-unquote, destroy the base of But the fact that what this medrish is adding, the planned words with Mashkon, so various commentators are wondering, you know, is there something deeper here that is being added to the understanding? Is it just a play on words? Is it just the coincidence that the word Mishkon and the word Mashkon sound alike or almost spelled alike? Or is there some deeper connection between the phenomenon, the concept of a collateral, and the idea that's being conveyed? Rav Zelma Valazhiner, the brother of the famed Reb Chaim of Olashen, tries to suggest a really beautiful and powerful message by taking a deeper look at the laws of mashkon, the laws of collaterals, which were studied and we read earlier in Sefer Shmos, the Perk Kafbet. There the Torah describes a desperate debtor, someone who is so poor that not only can they not repay their loan, but they barely have anything even to give as collateral, to be held as a security, and the Torah describes someone who just has the clothing on his back. He has his clothing that he wears to work during the day, his pajamas, his night clothing that he wears when he goes to sleep, and says the Torah, if he gives you his day clothing, you're allowed to hold them at night, because he doesn't need them. But every day, you, the creditor, have to go and return the clothing so that he can keep his basic dignity, be able to go to work, and of course, ultimately, hopefully, be able to repay the debt. But even though he owes you the money and he can't pay it, even though he's giving you this collateral in lieu of that, you cannot just hold it, even though by rights you deserve it, you deserve even more, but you can't just hold it if he needs it during the day. Rashi gives the example of a person has work clothing and has used this collateral, so the debtor has nothing else to wear during the day, the creditor must return that garment each morning. So if that being the case, that's the halakha, Rashi quoted it earlier in Sefer Shmos. the Gemara and Baba Metzia elaborates on it in greater detail. If that's the case, wonders, are of Zalmanah, Zalmanah of Volajan. So why hasn't Hashem, who is the creditor, why hasn't He returned the Beis HaMikdash, the collateral? After all, if we just saw that the Halach is that a must be returned when it is needed, then certainly the Beis HaMikdash, which is the collateral in our metaphor, and is so obviously needed by us, the Jewish people, the debtor, shouldn't it have been given back to us, just like the work or the morning clothing is given back to the desperate debtor every morning? How come Hashem hasn't returned the collateral if we desperately need it, if according to the Torah, you have to return the collateral when a debtor desperately needs his or her collateral? In order to answer this question, Al Zalmullah says poignantly that the only answer must be the one that is found in the continuation of the Torah text itself which explains that the reason that a creditor must return the collateral in the morning is because If he, the debtor, will cry out to me, says God, I shall listen to him, for I am compassionate. In other words, the absence of the collateral is so painful that the debtor cries out in distress, and as a result, Hashem's compassion is aroused, thereby requiring the return, even if only temporarily, of the mashkon. The inescapable conclusion notes of Zemelah is that the reason that Hashem has not returned our collateral and rebuilt the Beis HaMikdash must be because we are not appropriately anguished over its absence, and we have not cried out for its return. The Torah describes the debtor crying out, and as a result, the collateral is returned. Were we to cry out to Hashem over the Chorban Habayis, of the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, if we would truly feel there is something missing in our life, that we were desperate to get the Beis HaMikdash back, then it's true God would have no choice but to respond and return the base of Mekdash, to return the collateral which he took. After all, Hashem says about himself, Ki ani, I am compassionate. The inescapable conclusion, and the bitter lesson, and the bitter pill which we must all accept and try to work on is the fact that evidently, we don't miss the base of Mekdash, and we're not crying over it. Because if we did, Hashem would have no choice but to return it. After Moshe, having been given all of the Instructions for the Construction of the Mishkan and the Development of the Special Big Day Kahuna... We are now ready in Parshios of and for the actual construction of these important items. And interestingly, right at the outset, in the beginning of Parak Lamed hey, we have one of the multiple references that we find in the Torah. And here, among others, it's not the only time, but here is a very prominent time where, juxtaposed to laws relating to the Mishkan, we have the Torah inserting halochos relating to Shabbos. Sheshesh Yamim Tasam Lacha Obi Mashvi Yelachem Kodesh Shabbos Shabbasson Lashem Chalos Abom Lacha Yumas. This a very, very famous Pasuk, Six days you work, and on the seventh day you must rest, and if you violate that, you are subject to a capital punishment. That pasuk is introduced right here at the outset, right before the actual start of the construction of the Mishkan. And Rashi quotes from Chazal, who wonder why we have this juxtaposition, what does one thing have to do with another, why is it being inserted right here before the construction of the Mishkan? And Rashi teaches us the profound and important lesson that as important as building the Mishkan is, you should know that the halachos of Shabbos are predominant, are more prominent, more important, and they are controlling. That is to say that you cannot violate Shabbos, even to do something as wonderful and lofty as building the Mishkan. Even that mitzvah is eno docha Shabbos. In the words of Rashi, and this principle, uh, which is not only tr- is not only true uh, in the specific and limited sense of the Mishkan not being able to docha Shabbos, but it is considered a paradigm for the broader approach that any act you have, no matter how virtuous you might think it is, no matter how much of a mitzvah it might be, in general, we never violate Shabbos. Shabbos is so sacrosanct that under almost no circumstances will we ever be willing to violate Shabbos, even to fulfill a wonderful mitzvah like the Mishkan or any other mitzvah you might be thinking of. The only exception would be if a person has a risk to life, pikuach nefesh, but other than that, we don't Violate Shabbos even in pursuit of other noble and religious goals. With that background in mind, a number of the post scheme in the mid and late 20th century addressed the following question, which on the one hand could theoretically you could say is timeless, but it became particularly timely with the growing assimilation and alienation of many many Jews across. The world and the question was: Could an Orthodox family invite over non-Orthodox, non-religious, non-Shomer Shabbos friends or relatives to their house to enjoy a Shabbos experience, a Shabbos meal? On the one hand, it sounds like such a wonderful idea. What a beautiful experience and a show of a brotherly uh, love. On the other hand, if you can assume almost as a guarantee that by that invitation, the people you're inviting will be driving on Shabbos and violating Shabbos, are you allowed to inter- invite them? Or perhaps by you inviting them, you are causing them to sin, and then you yourself are in violation. So this is the question. Among the many poskim who were strict on this matter is Ramosha Moshe Feinstein. And in a very important shuva, he assumes that that would be a Torah prohibition, an Isra del Raisa, to invite the person. After all, he says, by you inviting him or her to come to your house, you are causing them to be mechal Shabbos. They are driving to your house, and every minute, every second, their foot is on the gas on their way to your house. It is as if you are causing them to sin because they're coming because of your invitation, and therefore you have violated the Torah prohibition of listen L'osite, lositei You are putting a stumbling block before someone. You are causing them to sin. Other contemporary poskim are not as convinced by Rav Moshe's strong words. Rav Asher Weiss and others point out that since most likely, or pretty much guaranteed, this person would be driving and be Mahal Shabbos anyway, the only thing that you've changed is the destination of where they're driving. But if you hadn't invited them to your house, so then they'd be going to the mall, they may be doing, who knows what they'd be doing, but they'd be most, almost definitely being Mahal Shabbos and driving anyway. And therefore, as long as they were going to sin anyway, it cannot be said that you are the one who caused or enabled the sin, and therefore it would not be a Torah violation, it would not be an Isra Daraisa of Lefnever. That's one area of debate. However, others who are strict point to the fact that even if you could agree with that assumption that you have not caused the person to sin in any direct way, however, there are shown him, notably the Tosvos and the Rush, who hold that even when you have not caused the person to sin, even when your action is not integral and necessary for the person to sin, but nevertheless, to in any way, even minor, participate in even the most minor way in any way, facilitate or help a person sin, even if it's far less than causing or enabling something much lower than that, much more peripheral than that, It may not be an Isr Daraisa, but there still may be an de Darabonin. There may be a rabbinic prohibition. And therefore, some say that it's true the person might be driving anyway. And therefore, that's why you're not over the de Daraisa of of Lifneiver. But it still might be prohibited rabbinically. It still might be an de Darabonin. But to this also, Rav Usher Weiss says he doesn't think that's true. He's not persuaded by this. After all, he points out, it's tragic, but we have to acknowledge the fact that the people that we're talking about inviting, most likely this isn't them just violating Shabbos, but otherwise they're observant. And now the question is, how much was I responsible for this particular violation of Shabbos? We're talking about people who are generally non-observant, generally secular in, in, in the way we, you know, in our, in our colloquial use of the term. And therefore, they're violating all the Averos, more or less. You know, again, obviously everyone does good things. Everyone does some mitzvot. But for the most part, they don't see themselves bound by Torah mitzvot. So they don't believe in that. They're not brought up with that. Whatever the reason is, they don't accept the whole system of Allah. And according to um, some important post notably the shach, in his commentary to Shulchan Aruch, this whole secondary prohibition, known as Missayeah, that you can't even help a little bit, you can't be involved even on the periphery, that only is true, that is limited to someone who's fundamentally observant, but at the moment is tempted and weak and doing a particular avera. We're all, none of us are perfect, we all sin, we all have our moments of temptation. So it's in that moment, said the Shach, that there's a special halacha that you can't help even a little bit, you can't be involved even on the periphery, and if you do, that's Nisudar Rabbonon. But, if you have somebody who is fundamentally in a wholesale level, rejects the authority of halacha in the Torah, and therefore it's not just that they happen to be sinning in a moment of weakness or temptation, but in general they sin because they don't accept the whole premise of the Torah and halacha, so then while it's still true you can't enable or cause the person to sin, that's a Torah prohibition of Lefnei but this secondary prohibition called that you can't even help on a peripheral level, that may not apply in the case where person is in general not religious at all. Another factor which is mentioned is do we look at the big picture? After all, even if you've helped them sin, but by exposing them to orthodoxy, to friendly people, to people who have a beautiful Shabbos table, maybe you're in the broader sense bringing them closer to Shabbos. And many poskim accept that, ends justifying the means in this situation as yet another argument to permit. As I mentioned, Moshe Feinstein and some other poskim are Machimir, but many other poskim, including Moshe sternbach Avroch Weiss, and others, are Mechil. And some poskim, which include my rebbeim, accept a requirement known in the name of R' Shlomo Zalman Orbach that you should offer the person the ability to sleep over and come over before Shabbos, even if they don't take you up on that. But by offering, that would help as well. Our parsha contains a description of the conclusion of the fundraising campaign to build the Mishkan that had begun in Parshas Truma. And the Torah tells us incredibly that the other leaders had come to Moshe to tell him that the people had given so much that they really didn't need any more. As a result, Moshe, Moshe sent word out to the camp, telling everyone, no more, stop giving. And the people stopped, in fact, from giving. In the Tzvah extended commentary to this pasuk and the psukim that come along with it, he's bothered by two things. One is a literary one, sensitive to the nuances of language. The way the Svasemes reads the pasuk, which I just uh, shared with you, it seems like it's unnecessarily verbose and may even include a redundancy. The way the Swasemus reads the Pasuk, when it says Al Yasu Hashem has already Moshe has already commanded the people to stop giving. However, the final three words of the Pasuk, the Kaleha Am Mehavi, the way the Tzfasemis reads it, it's not just a description of the result. Moshe told them to stop, and they stopped, but it sounds like it was also part of the direction of Moshe: stop giving. And if the is reading is correct, of course, he's bothered, understandably, by why the redundancy, why the double language, why the unnecessary verbosity. The second question that Sfat asks is a more basic one on the whole concept of why were other leaders running to Moshe complaining or worried that there was too much? Why did Moshe react immediately to halt any further donations? What could be bad about people giving too much? It's a a dream of every fundraiser that they should get even more than they needed. Why would you tell the people to stop uh, giving? Nowadays, we would say bonus round or something like that. You know, no no one tells people to stop giving once they've gotten whatever their original goal was. And yet here Moshe seems urgent to stop the people from giving. Why? What would be wrong about getting more donations than they needed? In order to explain these questions, Asas suggests the following. He says that the people started out giving with the right attitude, sincerely, idealistically, and altruistically. As Rashi tells us back in Parsha Truma, when the fundraising campaign begin, began, they were all to give Yidvenu Libo. And Rashi explains that means Lashon Ratzon Hatov. They were giving for sincere and good reasons, for the right reason, because it was a mitzvah, to perform this mitzvah for the honor of Hashem. However, says the Tzfasemes, it's only natural that the more you do something, really any mitzvah, but certainly when it comes to tzedakah, he says, that the longer and the more you're doing something, the more you risk other less idealistic, less noble motivations creeping in. The more open the heart is, the more susceptible it is also to more negative impulses and motivations and feelings. And the overflow of emotion which leads to such generosity can also, in fact, go beyond the bounds of proper giving or proper mitzvah observance and, in fact, be a bad thing. Says the Swasemas, these other leaders, what he calls the tzadikim and the chachamim of the Jewish people, they saw this, they noticed the problem. The generosity of the Jewish people had gone and become more than was appropriate. The chasheshu, when they were concerned, emes, the shame shamayim. it was no longer truly being done for sincere, mitzvah, idealistic, altruistic purposes. And adds the Swasemas as a postscript. It's important in general, and especially when it comes to the mitzvah of charity, What gives the action its essential character, whether it's ultimately a good thing or a bad thing, is the motivation of why the person is doing it. Are they doing it for sincere, noble purposes, or is it out of some other selfish or other ulterior motive? says the Tzfasemes, in light of this insight, now we can go back and read the Pasuk. When Moshe tells the people to stop giving, it's not just to pause and no longer give anymore, that's the first half of the Pasuk, al-ya'asu'od However, the Tzfasemes says, Moshe also wanted the people not just to stop giving, but in a more positive, productive way, not just to stop from doing, but to start doing, doing namely, thinking. To stop, so they could use that stoppage as an opportunity to reconsider to pause, to reflect, to self-reflect. Why are we doing this? Why did we start doing this? Are we still as sincere as we need to be? Do we need to fix or improve ourselves in any one way, in any such way? To do a self-reflection, a cheshbun ha-nefesh. Especially with tzedakah, there can be many motivations why a person would want to give. It can be sincere, it can be to help the cause, it can be to honor Hashem or to help poor people or to help build the Mishkan in this case, or it can be for selfish and ulterior motives. The stopping, says this Fasemes, wasn't just the pause and the act of giving, but it was in a productive, positive sense to use that opportunity to pause, not just as a stoppage of giving, but as an opportunity to self-reflect and to grow. And That, he says, is the second half of the Pasuk. They didn't just stop giving in a passive sense, but in an active sense, they stopped so that they could self-reflect and reorient themselves back in a more sincere and humble <coughs> direction. As Fasemes continues and points out that this is a point which is broadly speaking a very important in all of Avodah Hashem he quotes a very famous teaching from the founder of Hasidus, the Baal Shem Tov on the Pesach in the beginning of the Navi Heskel. the Navi there has one of the most famous esoteric prophecies in all of Jewish tradition of the Maisa Merkava and among the things that the Navi describes seeing are these holy animals which are kind of angels in the form of kind of chios, and the description that the Navi gives there is that these animals are rotzo vashav, they run and they stop and the Baal Shem Tov suggests that this is a model for all spiritual growth. That all of us, in all that we're doing, need to first be ratso. We need to run in the sense that we need to go forward. We need to grow. We need to, we need to always be progressing. But at the same time, he says, we also need to pause every now and then. We need the vishov. To stop, to pause, to reflect. And to make sure we still have the proper perspective and humility. We can't go so far. We can't run so fast. And so, uh, without any pause that we lose sight of why we got into this to begin with, why we started, and what the proper motivations are. We have to make sure when we pause to, that we're still sincere, and that it's not just an external act. He suggests as well that when you go back to our Parsha, the end of the Pasuk says that the people gave Dayam Hoser. And it seems like a contradiction. Orachayim asks this very famous question, Dayam sounds like they gave exactly the right amount. The hoser sounds like they gave too much. Well, which one is it? So the sasemes suggests, his interpretation, based on what we've seen until now, is in terms of how much they gave, it was dayam. But the hoser that it's describing is not about how much they gave, but the hoser, they added an extra motivation. There was external, less than kosher motivations that got, so to speak, mixed in. And so the sasemes, that's what the Torah is describing. That's why they had to stop or to purify their motivations, make sure everything was done in the right way. Our parsha opens by telling us what's about to come. These are the accountings of the mishkan as initiated and led by Moshe. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. Subsequent psukim, the body of Parshas Pekude, are an accounting, a list of the various materials that were contributed and the various components of the mishkan that were built through such contributions. Incredibly, Chazal, in the Medrash Rabbah here on our parsha as well as in some parallel medrashim, explain in greater detail and embellish, in fact, on the basic thrust of these sukkim and explain that the accounting that Moshe gives of the contributions and how they were used to build the Mishkan was, in fact, much more detailed and much more specific than we see even in the subsequent sukkim in our Parsha. According to the medrash, Moshe gave an incredibly specific accounting, worthy of even the most rigorous of audits, explaining every shekel, every bit of gold or silver or other materials that was contributed and exactly how much was contributed and how much was used for all the different specific kalium, the different components of the Mishkan. And the reason, says the Medrash, that Moshe had to give such a specific, such a detailed accounting is because he overheard certain cynics, late Sane Hador, who were sowing seeds of doubt and cynicism among the people, suggesting that in fact Moshe had been skimming off of the top, that he had been enriching himself by stealing small percentages of all of the different contributions. And therefore, Moshe, when he heard this accusation, this cynical ploy, he reacts with righteous indignation, and he tells the people, don't you worry, you have my word, that when we finish building everything, I will give you an exact, specific, and detailed accounting of everything that was contributed to the Shekel, and how that was spent going into each of various constituent component that made up the Mishkan. That, says the Medrash, in even greater detail than we even have in our Parsha. When we we go through the Parsha, it seems pretty detailed, but certainly nothing compared to the specificity and the amounts and the detail that the Medrash says, in fact, went on as Moshe responded uh, to this veiled accusation that he had enriched himself inappropriately from the contributions. If you think about it, it seems to be quite the criticism of the Jewish people that they would have suspected Moshe in this way. First of all, as the Medrash notes... HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself trusts Moshe. As we'll read in Bamidbar, in Perak Yudbet, Hashem says and declares that he trusts Moshe, he is the most trusted of all the people. So if Hashem trusts Moshe, the people didn't? Moreover, we just read two weeks ago on Parshat Kisisa that there was another fundraising campaign where Aaron HaKohen had uh, taken gold that was contributed and turned it into a golden calf, an Egel HaZahav. Do we have any indication in the Chumash or the Medrash? Torsha b'Ksav or Torsha b'Alpeh, that the people suspected that maybe Aaron had skimmed from that campaign. Did anyone doubt? Did anyone suspect that Aaron had enriched himself from the gold contributed to the Egel Azahav? How come they suspected Moshe and didn't suspect Aaron? How come they asked for an accounting after the building of the Mishkan and never asked for one after the construction of the Egel Azahav? In order to answer these questions, the Oznaim LeTorah, Rav Zalman Serutzkin, suggests that in fact, if we think about it. We look at it from a, perhaps a different perspective. We'll get a profound insight not only into the Jewish people at that time, but of all time, and really, a, I think a very important lesson for all of us to consider. It says Rav Zalman in, in his own words, that the basis of understanding these p'sukim, we have to realize that the nukuda ha'pinimit shabaleva yehudi hula sot ratzon kono. In our heart of hearts, in the deepest recesses of our consciousness, every Jew, every man, woman, and child really wants to do the right thing. That is part of our DNA, that's how we are hardwired, that is what it means to have a neshama uh, inside of us. We really, really, our true selves want to do the right thing. But of course, as we're human, uh, sometimes we get caught up in the various vices and temptations of the world, and we don't always do the right thing. But in our heart of hearts, really, really, we want to do the right thing. As a proof for this assertion, he quotes the famous statement of the Rambam, in Hichels Gerishin in Perek Bet, that in certain limited cases where the bezd and paskins that a man needs to give his wife a get and he's recalcitrant, and he refuses, says the Rambam in certain limited cases, that Besdin can actually physically coerce him into giving the get. The Rambam asks, but why is that ever allowed? Don't we know that the halach is that a, a get is only considered kosher, it's only considered legitimate, if it's given completely mi ratzon hatov, out of the free will of the husband? If we coerce him, perhaps we're not even helping the woman, because the get is not even worth the paper it's written on, unless it's given out of the free will of the husband answers the Rambam, in this type of case where the Bezin has paskin that the right thing to do is to give the get, this husband, despite whatever hatred uh, and threats that he is uh, espousing, but even this husband in this terrible moment, really, 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 in his heart of hearts, he wants to give a get because he knows it's the right thing to do, the Bezin paskin, that's the right thing to do. But, like... All of us in different points in our life, his Yetzirah, the worst and evil angels of his nature, have gotten the best of him. And unfortunately, he's not doing the right thing. But that's not who he really is. That's the Yetzirah artificially grafting itself on him and getting him to do the wrong thing. And therefore, when we physically coerce him, says the Rambam, we're not changing his will, but in fact, we are freeing his true will. To do the right thing, we're freeing it from the shackles of the artificial Yetzihara. But really, his true will is to do the right thing, and therefore that's why the get is considered kosher. So, based on this assertion, says Rasurotskin in the Oznaim Torah, something very beautiful. When a Jew contributes money, whether it's to the Mishkan or anything else, he or she very much wants that every bit of that contribution, every penny, every shekel, goes towards the mitzvah itself. He doesn't want that money to be wasted, and certainly Khashol not to be in any way stolen. Why? Because first of all, you want the actual you know, cause that you've contributed to to receive the money, but also, for yourself, you want that every bit of the money you contributed goes to that because you want this chos of the mitzvah because really, really, you believe in this cause. And therefore, you very much want every bit of money to go to uh, that cause, whether it's the Mishkan or anything else. And therefore, Cesar Sorotzkin, that's why the people audited Moshe, not because they suspected him of stealing as much as they wanted to make sure from their own perspective that every bit of money that they gave really went where it was supposed to so that they could be in in fully... uh, partnered and contribute and get credit for the mitzvah of building the Mishkan. However, when it came to building the Egel, of course, it was a terrible, very severe, horrible sin that they did those people in that generation. However, even those people, those few thousand people who contributed it and worshipped the Egel, even they knew in their heart of hearts it was the wrong thing to do. They were filled with a tremendous inner conflict. They did it, but they knew it was wrong. And therefore, says Rasurotskin, they didn't really mind if some of that money would have been lost or wasted. They wouldn't even have minded <laughs> if their money in the end didn't go to doing such a bad Avera would have been okay. And therefore, that's why they didn't suspect and Therefore, they didn't do an audit at that time. What a completely different way of looking at this. What a beautiful insight into these psukim.